0: John 11, 7 through 16. As most of you know, I have been living the bachelor life this week with my six ladies all down in North Carolina. Many of you have fed me. Thank you for feeding me. My wife always worries that I'm going to starve when she's gone. Um, I am looking forward to hopping on a plane this afternoon to go spend a few, uh, a few days with them before coming back to teach uh, Thursday night. Lila called me this morning and said, your Father's Day present is that you get to see us tonight. Um, amen. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, I, I miss my girls. Uh, but the first day or two alone is it's sort of fun. right? It, it, it just is, let's be honest. My time is entirely my own. I can work all day. I can meet with more people. I can run longer. I didn't have to take a three-year-old potty one time all week. It was wonderful. Uh, you start to miss them immediately, of course. I can't wait to be with them. But there are positives. The main positive, you know what it is, right? What's the main positive? Sleep. sleep. There it is. Good. Perfect. You guys are tracking. I love sleep. Uh, but children are great sleep saboteurs. Um, now, we actually really, by the grace of God, uh, our children are wonderful sleepers. We're thankful for that. But it's just in the nature of even the best of children to mess up their parents' Sleep. Uh, middle of the night, potty emergencies. Two weeks ago, Tess woke up at like 3 in the morning with a nosebleed. How are you bleeding out of your face, crying, sleeping, all at the same time, while I'm trying to clean you up, calm you down, keep you quiet, while the other three stay asleep? It was just, it's it's madness, right? Parenting is insanity sometimes. Right? Children are sleep thieves, especially newborns, of course. So it has been wonderful. Uh, I see Anthony up there. As uh, Other Anthony or Sam is here somewhere. Vera uh, is sleeping through the night, and so I'm just, uh, life is good. We're sleeping now through the night. So pray for the Espositos, uh, the Stevenses, and the Langones. Uh, no sleep. Uh, but for me this week, beautiful, uninterrupted, deep sleep. Sleep is sweet. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. I run for many reasons, but honestly, I run in part to sleep. I love sleeping, but I'm not a great sleeper. I have a hard time shutting down and sleeping. And I have found that when I wear out my body, I sleep better. And so I run to sleep because sleep is so wonderful. We all love sleep, right? We all recognize how good sleep is. It's one of the silly immaturities of children. They they complain about having to sleep when all we adults want to do is to be able to sleep. Because it's so good. It's so restful, peaceful, restorative, life-giving. We all of us long for, look forward to, and enjoy sleep. Some of you are going to do so in the next few minutes, right? I I'm kidding. I'm not really kidding. Uh, but we long for, we look forward to, we love sleep. And this morning, Jesus is going to call death sleep that thing that we all so long for and look forward to and love, sleep, Jesus chooses that as a metaphor for death. That's that's a little strange. Let's talk about that this morning. More death this morning. Happy Father's Day. But we cannot talk about death too much. This morning, it's death as sleep. John 11, 7 through 16 feels like a sort of a side From the main story, I was looking around at other sermons. A lot of people just kind of skip over these verses. A lot of the commentaries don't get a lot of attention to these verses. We're setting aside Mary, Martha, and Lazarus for a moment. We're going to come back to them next week, and we're going to get to the main point of the text next week. I am the resurrection and the life. But I think these verses deserve more attention than they tend to get. They get skipped over, but Jesus says some important things here that I don't want us to miss. Remember, last week was the love of God, the troubles of life, and the glory of God. God loves his people, and God troubles his people. God troubles his people because he loves his people, and God troubles his people for his glory and for our good. We're going to see more of that today, which is good because we are still troubled by this. We're going to talk more about providence today, which is good because Calvin says there's nothing more important for us to know. And so what I want to do is I want to apply God's providence to three topics that come up in these verses. These are going to serve as our three points to help structure our time. I want us to consider God's providence and your time, then God's providence and your death, and then finally God's providence and your faith. Our big idea this morning is that in Christ, God's providence transforms your death, which strengthens your faith which helps you to redeem your time. Strengthened death. No, transformed death. Strengthened faith. Redeemed time. All in light of God's particular providence. Let's, let's read our text. This is the most important part. Your job is to make sure that my words are coming from this word. So let's look at John chapter 11 again. I want to read starting in verse 1 just to get us kind of into the story. I'll read the whole of 1 through 16, but our focus will be verses 7 through 16. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. If you would, bow with me. Let's, let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, we have just sung that it is not death to die. Father, that is a strange thing to sing and to say. Father, we pray that you would help us now through your word to understand what Christ has to tell us here about life and about death. We pray that you would help us to soberly consider our life in light of our impending death. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life. Father, help us to see his glory. Help us to see how good you are and how in control you are of our time and of our day-to-day lives. And thus, ultimately, of our deaths as well. And help us to learn how to read our current lives in light of those, that coming death. And read that coming death in light of Jesus Christ. Father, that is much to ask Father, there is much that we need. Please help us now. Father, please help me. I, I will accomplish nothing in this time if you do not work by your spirit through your word. So, Father, please set me aside. Set aside any agenda I may have. Father, set aside anything distracting. Um, Father, help us to pay great and close attention to your word and great and close attention to your Christ. Father, help us to love him. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, let's start with time, God's providence and your time. But first, again, why providence again? Am I just obsessed with providence? Do I just want an excuse to talk about it again? Probably, yes, let's be honest. But, but it is there. It, it, it's there. Is it in the text? It's, it's definitely in the text. So let's, let's see. Let me first establish the pervasiveness of providence in this text. Remember our story. Verse 1, we got our characters and our conflict. We have three siblings, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Lazarus was ill. Jesus was away. Mary and Martha sinned for Jesus. And in verse 3, we, we learn one of the key pieces in the story there. When they say to Jesus, he whom you love is ill. And then again in verse 5, this is emphasized for us. Jesus loved Martha and Mary And Lazarus. So everything that is to come is in those, is in that context. Jesus loves them. Christian, Jesus loves you. No matter what your circumstances currently may be trying to tell you, Jesus loves you. And this makes that clear. But then we also saw this love demonstrate itself in a strange way. Verse 6 Jesus stayed. Lazarus sick. Jesus stays, Lazarus dying, Jesus waiting. We'll see why that is again in a moment, but that's actually where we left the text last week. We left it in verse 6 with Lazarus languishing and Jesus lingering, Jesus waits. Verse 7. Now, two days later, it's time to go. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples. Let us go to Judea again now note the language that he uses there it's interesting i think this is a little important note that jesus doesn't say let us go to bethany or let us go to lazarus or let us go to mary and martha no, he says let us go to judea why well we see why in verse 8 because look at the disciples response to jesus's idea rabbi teacher well, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? I think that's why Jesus says Judea. This is a story that is all about death. Death is the context. Death is going to be the result, followed by life, followed by Jesus' death, followed by Jesus' life. But Jesus is drawing attention to the death and danger. Jesus is drawing his disciples' attention to the death. And the danger. They just left Judea and Jerusalem because of 1039. They sought to arrest him. They left because of 1031. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Let the disciples remember that. How could they not? Why should we go there? Death is there. Exactly. Uh, that's, That's our second point. But it's not yet time to consider death. Right now, we're considering time. Why are we considering time? Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. That's a time text. What is Jesus saying? And what does it have to do with providence? Well, everything, I think. It's a time text. It's a, it's a providence pronouncement. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Well, technically no, right? We know there's not technically 12. There's 24 hours, but we, we, we know that that's not what Jesus is saying. We know what Jesus is saying. This may have been a, a saying or a proverb back then that he's referencing. Um, but the Jews, as did most ancients, pre-accurate clocks, they generally just divided the day into two halves. You had light and you had dark. They were roughly. 12 hours each. Of course, the specific length of the day uh, time fluctuated with the changing seasons. But the point is that there is a specific allotted time for work. Without lights, you work in the day. You don't work in the dark. There is a fixed and set time to do what must be done. But Jesus is obviously talking about more than that. He's speaking metaphorically. And he applies this uh, metaphor first to their specific circumstances. The disciples are afraid. Hey, Jesus, they want to kill you. We're with you. That could result in them killing us. We don't want to be killed. And so Jesus is first saying to them here, do not be afraid. It is still the daytime. If you walk in the day, you do not stumble. In other words, what he's saying is that my life is, and your life is not going to be cut short before the time fixed by the Father. While it is day, there is no danger. It is still the day. Do not fear. Let us go to Judea. But, and this also then applies more generally, and it very much applies to us. Jesus is saying with this proverb that his allotted time is definitively fixed. It cannot be lengthened through the disciples' desired precautionary measures, and it cannot be shortened through the Jews' previous attempts to arrest and stone him. Jesus' days were definitively fixed in and by God's sovereign good, eternal decree. Jesus perfectly understood that his time was completely in God's hand. God's hand that we've been seeing, which is a preserving hand and a providential hand. And so just as his time is fixed in God's hand and he will go, he will go according to God's plan, so is your time fixed in God's hand and will go according to God's plan. That's why we're talking about providence. Jesus here counsels and compels the disciples with God's providence, God's good governing of his world. God's particular, meticulous governing of his world. Remember, his providence is his preserving and governing of all creatures and actions. God decrees all, and then God directs all. That's God's providence. John Flavel. Do you want me to quote his, if you could but see God's direct design, you'd pick the exact circumstances in which you find yourself? Do you want me to quote that again? I'm joking. I won't. I will soon, probably. But... Flavel has another book titled The Mystery of Providence. And in it, Flavel defines providence like this. This is excellent. He says providence is, he defines providence as nothing else but the performance of God's gracious purposes and promises to his people. Providence is the performance of God's gracious purposes and promises to his people. That's pretty perfect. There are two ways that God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us in his word and in his works. God's works are divided into two, creation and providence. We're focusing on providence. And the beauty and the brilliance of providence is that it is simply the outworking, it is the fulfilling, it is the accomplishing of God's promised word in our life. Christian, do you know that God has made grand and great and glorious promises to you? Uh, Promises of your eternal good and joy and life and rest and peace in him. He's made those promises very clear in his word. And then he promises that he will work those out perfectly through his providence. What if you believed that he was always doing that? In all things. What if we truly believed that you and your time was entirely in God's good fatherly hand? What if you believed Psalm 139, 16? In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. That's a profoundly true statement. What what if we actually believed it? All of your days already written, this day, already written, written by the good and gracious God who loves you and who has promised your eternal good. What if it's actually true? Then then you would literally have nothing to fear. You would literally have nothing to be anxious about, nothing to be sad about, and understanding of and resting in God's providence can literally be life-changing. And so consider it. I commend to you a constant consideration of the providence of God. Flavel says this later in the book. He says that meditation and reflection on God's providence is certainly a highway of walking with God, and a, and a soul may enjoy as sweet communion with God in his providence as in any of his ordinances. Wow. What a claim! What if? What a promise. What if that's true? Well, then I commend to you Flavel's application. He says, It is your duty, especially in times of trouble, to reflect upon the performances of providence for you in all the states and through all the stages of your life. He says, Trust God. Trust that He's wise. Trust that He knows what He's doing. Trust that He's powerful enough to actually do the thing that He has told you that He would do. Trust Him. There is much Pleasure in providence. There is much peace in providence in knowing that your time is entirely in your God's good fatherly hand. And that also then means, if all that's true, that also then means that your time is precious. Are there not 12 hours in the day? There is not less than 12 hours, but there's also not more than 12 hours. Jesus specifically connects our time to God's task, to, to what God is up to and doing in the world. If he has made us, well, then we are his. If he has saved us, then we are doubly his. If he is the God of the Bible, then we exist for him. Romans eleven thirty six. 36, for from him and to him and through him are all things, including us, including you, including your time. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through Him and for Him, including you, and including your time. I used 1 Peter 2.9 in Sunday school this morning. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That requires our time. That requires first believing that our time is first his and for him, and only secondarily ours and for us. Time is precious. Time is short. Your time is your most valuable commodity. How are you using it? What are you doing with it? All right, passive-aggressive pastor time. I had to repent yesterday. And I went back and I changed this whole part. So if it's bad now, it was terrible yesterday. So I've, I have fixed it. So be patient with me. I've tried to fix it. But, this is, I'm just going to be honest. I've been having the hardest time trying to figure out how to encourage you to devote more of your time to your church. That's just, just being completely honest. And I know that I'm doing something wrong. I obviously don't know what it is, or I would do it differently. But I am concerned with how little many of us seem to be concerned with giving our time, our attention, and our presence to the things of God and the church of God. Again, I know that I struggle with this as well. Again, I understand that. I struggle greatly with using my time well to the glory of God. So, again, I know that. So I want to, I must be patient and compassionate and understanding. I know that whiny, guilt-trippy, manipulative doesn't work. But... I am concerned with how difficult it is to get people to come to Sunday school and Bible study. I am concerned with how difficult it is to get people to intentionally reach out uh, to one another and to care for one another. And again, I'm speaking to myself. I know that I'm the chief of sinners. As one of the pastors, I am part of the problem. And so again, I don't want this to be a validate me, puff up my ego with your attendance, tell me how great I am by your presence thing. I, I don't. I'm very aware that I'm not. And I know that we're all busy I know that some of you are far more busy than I am. I know that life is hard. and I know that some of your lives are very hard. But what if God really is life? And what if God himself truly is life itself? What if knowing him is the thing that you really, really need? What if life and peace and joy is really found in him? And what if he has revealed to us the means through which we experience all of that? His word and prayer, primarily in the context of his people, his church. That's honestly what I want for us. This is the thing that I am most desperate for, for myself and for my girls and for my church, is that we would know and delight in the Lord of life. That's it. I know how much I struggle with that. So I assume that you struggle with it too. But I honestly believe that God has told us how and where we find him. And it's in his church, among his people, as his word is taught and prayed. Listen, I know that my Sunday schools and Bible studies aren't that much to write home about. There's a lot of better teachers that you could just listen to online. I know that extra sleep sounds wonderful. I know that Netflix is much more entertaining. But, but, what if, just what if, the Lord really does work through these ordinary means? even if poorly led. Honestly, what if the Lord really works through the teaching of his word in his church and through the prayers of his people in his church? And if he says, I am life and joy and peace, and by the way, here's where you find me. What if that's true? This text is telling us that our time matters. How we use our time really matters. We are stewards of our time because it's his time. And yet how insistent are most of us, and again, chief of sinners, how insistent are most of us that our time is our own? That we, if we don't have all of our time to do what we want, when we want, if we don't do that, we get all upset and act like we're, we're being asked to do too much. You know, I, I'm speaking from personal struggle here. You know, I, I, I don't know, I could be wrong about this whole thing, but I know that part of my problem is that I simply do not enjoy the things that God's word, God's word tells me. That I'm supposed to enjoy. I have no problem watching a basketball game. I have no problem. I can read a book for six hours without stopping. I have no problem going for a run, eating a dessert, because I just genuinely delight in those things and I enjoy those things. You don't have to convince me to do those things. I do them because I love them and I enjoy them. And so, now, I know that I'm still learning to genuinely enjoy the things of God. And to genuinely enjoy the people of God. And maybe that's part of our problem. It's not supposed to be, hey guys, you know, I know this isn't any fun, but you know, you, you just grin and bear it, suck it up, I know we need to do these things. No. What I want this to be is that no, church, this is so good. And that God is so good, that He has abundant life. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand is pleasure forevermore. Knowing him is life. There's no higher privilege than knowing him. And that means that there's no higher privilege than knowing him together and gathering together to worship him. You know, I want my encouragement to stop missing this thing that is so good and that is so good for your soul and for, and for my soul. And I, and I don't know. Time, my time tirade is over. I'll stop now. Uh, but... You know, I want you to pray about that because I'm, I'm praying about that. I'm, I'm praying about that for myself. I mean, I've made the joke before that God has made me a pastor to force me to go to church. Right? Again, I know that I would have the same problem were I not paid. Uh, to do it. I I get all that. I'm speaking from experience. I'm speaking first and foremost to myself. I I set the tone. I'm part of the problem. But our time matters and how we use our time matters. And I want to use mine better. I want to model that better for my girls. I want to do that together as we see what is it that really matters and then how do we pursue that thing that really matters most effectively with our time. And it has to involve the church and the people of God. Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. How? Verse 16, the ESV translates it, Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. King James goes with redeeming the time. That's what the word really means. But these things aren't in conflict. They they complement each other. I want us to make better use of our time. I want to make better use of my time. I want to redeem my time. And I honestly believe that God's providence and trusting God's providence, seeing the goodness of the God of providence helps me to do that. And so I'm asking for you to pray that for me. I'm asking for you to pray that for our church, that God's providence would help us to redeem our time and to better use it in light of his purpose and his plan and his glory and his grace. To better use our time now in light of our death then so let's look at that for a second point number two come come back to me right, you checked out because you're angry come back this is too important we can better steward now if we better understand that we can better live life if this is true of death so let's consider god's providence and your death back to the text it's a time text and it's a death text we need help with both. Jesus has counseled and challenged the disciples with providence, which they are going to need in light of what is to come. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. You know, as I am said at the beginning, I think it's pretty significant that Jesus, who loves us, Jesus, our good shepherd, who perfectly cares for us, it's significant that he calls death sleep. He's calling sleep what the book of Job calls the king of terrors. What our culture, entire culture, seeks to entirely ignore, because it is so overwhelmingly horrifying. What is the one thing that we want, all of us, in life? We want to be known, and we want to be loved. We want to be not alone And we want to be with those that we love. I'm stealing from a man named Luke Ferry here. In other words, the one thing we really want is not to die and not to have our loved ones die on us. The one thing that we really want is to live. So, this is the problem. Your fundamental desire, which is to live, will inevitably be frustrated, you will die. And you cannot properly live your life without a consideration of your death. For it will come. It is coming. For some sooner. For some later. For all, eventually. I don't care how fit or healthy you are or how young you are. You're going to die. This is the problem. Death is the end of everything. It's the end of all that you care about. It is darkness, separation, uncertain, unknown, and unvoidable. Uh, Freud, terrible and awful, but Freud says like it's, it's so unknown and terrible. We can't even actually really imagine our own deaths. It's not even possible. We can't even conceive of it, this horrible, terrifying thing. And Jesus calls it sleep. That's huge. But first, is that what he's saying? Because the disciples are confused. Look at verse 12. Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Disciples, come on. Let's not be too hard on them, though. Death as sleep wasn't actually that common of a metaphor back then. We don't have tons of examples of this in ancient literature at the time. Plus, the disciples are scared. They're not thinking too clearly. They're probably trying to avoid death and thinking about death, if at all possible, like all of us. But John clarifies for us what Jesus means in verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then in verse 14, we see, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Stop there. Verse 1, Lazarus was ill. Verse 6, Jesus stays. Verse 14, Lazarus has died. Verse 11, Jesus says, Lazarus sleeps. And we discussed the why of the waiting in light of God's providence in detail last week. So I won't do it again. We know that God is working this for his glory. We know that God is working for our good. And we know that that should make us glad. Look at verse 15. Jesus uses that word here in the context of death. He says, I am glad. I know there's more to it than that. We'll come back to it in a second. But knowing that God works for his glory and our good makes us glad. But then death then life knocks us flat then the very painful and often prolonged realities of life in a fallen world with a sinful heart hits us in the space and we wonder glory good glad how can i be glad how can i be glad if things are so bad atheists today are they're wildly inconsistent i miss The old atheists, there's been a transition, it's a different kind of thing now. But the old atheists were more honest, they were more consistent, they understood the the logical conclusions of their position. They tended to be nihilists, from the Latin word for nothing, no meaning, no purpose, no point, and that resulted in part from the reality of death. They understood that. The French philosopher Albert Camus opens his famous The Myth of Sisyphus, Sisyphus, can't speak he opens it with this line here's how he starts this book this is one of those famous works in the history of philosophy here's what he says there is but one truly serious philosophical problem and that is suicide that's his question that's that's the philosophical problem his whole argument goes on to be basically that life is absurd it's meaningless and thus the only real question is whether or not to kill ourselves it's, it's pretty bleak but give him credit for consistency. If death is the ultimate bad, if it is the inevitable result of your life, whether today or in 50 years, and in the grand scheme of things, what really is the difference? If death is the inevitable result of your life, if the inevitable end is this overwhelmingly bad, then how could we ever be glad? The only solution that the world offers you is to not really think about it. But Jesus wants us to think about it because it's coming. It must be confronted. It's coming. What can be done about it? Well, look back and look forward. Look back at chapter 10, verse 11, where we have seen Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd dies. That's what he's saying. In this context of death, we've just seen that the good shepherd dies. Okay, look forward to 11.25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So that's the only thing that can be done, that has been done about death. And that's the only thing that can explain Christ's words in verses 14 and 15, that in effect, he kind of says, Lazarus has died I am glad, Again, I know there's more to it than that, but he's still, he's dead, I'm glad. It it sounds initially so cold and unfeeling, but Jesus could only say such a thing if he was going to do something about that death. If he was going to do something through that death. He could only encourage us to consider our death in light of God's providence if he has done something about our death and promised to do something through our death. And that's what we're going to look at in great detail next week in verses 25 and 26. That's what we've already looked at in great detail back in 10, 11. That's the very heart and soul of the very gospel, that it is the good news of our salvation, the good news of our life in light of our death. And it's all and only through the death and life of Christ. What Jesus is doing here with the dying and raising of Lazarus is preparing us for and pointing us toward what he was about to do in his dying and his rising. Lazarus is so secondary to this story. Lazarus is not the point of this story. Christ is. Jesus knows that death is your one problem. He knows that the wages of sin is death. For sin, as the rejection of the God of life deserves and demands death. The God of life is right and just to judge us for the ultimate crime of refusing Him in all His goodness and all His glory. That's why Jesus has come. That's why the gospel is so amazing. The God against whom we sin is the same God who provides for us the only solution to that sin in the sending of His Son. And remember, in the sending of his Son, he is sending his very self, in a sense. And so the gospel, quite simply, is that Jesus has come to take our place, to live in our place, to take on our sin, and the death that the sin deserves, to die in our place, that all who believe in him might live. No more death for us, because Christ has already taken the death. That's what he's illustrating here. That's what this is all about, That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through that and the how and the why of that in great detail next week. But for now, all I want to do with you is just consider for a moment how Scripture speaks of the death of a believer. I just just want us to see this. I want you to see the what, and we're going to do a lot of the how next week. Because I don't think that we think much about this. Jesus has just called death sleep. Now, let me be clear. This is first only for those who die in the Lord. This is only for those whose sins have been forgiven through faith in Christ. Death for anyone and everyone else will be an indescribable and eternal horror. It truly will be the king of terrors. Scripture piles up these metaphors because words cannot do uh, justice to what it will be like to be not only separated from the God of life, but judged and punished by the wrath of the God of life. Dying separates us from him, and it will very literally be. I said, this is only for those who die in the Lord. But look at that compared to what this sounds like. Christian, consider how scripture speaks of your death in Christ. It's going to give you a few quick passages very quickly, jot them down. You can consider them later. Psalm 116, verse 15. I preached on this with Gisela's funeral. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death. Of his saints, in Luke sixteen twenty two, Jesus, in a parable, well, kind of like a parable, describes the death of another Lazarus as Lazarus being carried away by, by angels to, to Abraham's side. I don't have time to get into it. In Luke twenty three forty three, Jesus describes the death of the believing thief on the cross, saying, "Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." Death, entrance to paradise. Coming up in chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says that he goes to prepare a place for us, that in his Father's house are many rooms, um, that he will take us there to himself. That's death. 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul sometimes, man, Paul. We would rather, would we? 2 Corinthians 5.8. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's Death. It's to be home with the Lord, the Lord of light and life, the Lord we love, the Lord in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Listen, Paul can even say in verse 6 of Second Corinthians 5 that in a sense, while we are in the body, we are away from the Lord. And now we know that God is with us always. We know that he is very much present. We know that we find great joy in communion with him. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But our experience of him then, seeing him then, literally in his presence, will be so indescribably better than our experience now that Paul can speak of now as being away from the Lord and then being home with the Lord. Transi- death is the transition from now to then, from away to home. Philippians 1:21. We say this all the time, but we don't believe it. To die is gain. Paul says in verse 23, his desire, again, is to depart. For that is to be with Christ. And that is far better. I don't know what to do with that sometimes. I'm being, I'm honest. What do you think of that? That's what I desire. That's far better. He's talking about death. That's what he's talking about. Revelation 14, 13. Revelation 14, 13. It says, Blessed are the dead who die. In the Lord. Blessed. Good. That's what the word means. Good. Happy. And so in our text, Jesus can metaphorically but truthfully call death sleep. Because back to our intro. Sleep is good. Sleep is blessing. Sleep is rest. Sleep is relief. Sleep is temporary. Sleep is a means to an end. Jesus says death is all of that. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus tastes death for us. And then verse 14 says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I said, you should fear death. If you are not in Christ and you don't fear death, you are a fool. It is foolish to not fear death. But in Christ, everything changes. He dies to defeat death. Owen's famous title, it's the death of death in the death of Christ. Christ dies to defeat Satan. Uh, Satan who wields the power and terror of death to keep us in fear and bondage. But in Christ, we're set free. We're set free from death. We're set free from the fear of death. In Christ, death is transformed. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is mocking death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Gone. Because of Christ. And so death for a believer, it's truly harmless. It's not that death itself is harmless. It's quite the opposite. Death is the greatest harm. Death is harm itself. No, death itself is not harmless, but the gospel is that Christ himself, God himself, has taken on all its eternal harm for us in our place and thus removed it entirely. He has entirely neutered the eternal harm of death. It is quite harmless for the believer because it was quite unimaginably harmful for Christ. And so death is transformed. Death as terror becomes death as transit in Christ for it is now nothing more than the means to usher us into the presence of our beloved Lord where there is fullness of joy. Again, that's the only way. Did it cross your mind what we were singing at all? We like, is a little weird. That's the only way we can ever dare sing it is not death to die. That's why those who have gone before us used to speak differently about death than we tend to. I could, just, I, could give you, I could just multiply Spurgeon death quotes. There's so many good ones. Let me give you just a few. Spurgeon says this, to be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. That's what we're trying to do here. Until you're ready for that, you're, you're really not ready for this. Spurgeon. The best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it is the one that is nearest heaven. Yeah, do we agree with that? Spurgeon. I love this one the only people for whom I have felt any envy have been dying members of this very church. We don't think like that. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the only people for whom I have ever felt any envy have been dying members of this very church. How could that be possible? Only Christ. Only because they are the closest to Christ. And so he says, it is not lost to die. It is a lasting, perpetual gain. If that is true, then it should profoundly shape both how we look at life and death. And so, wrapping up, wh- why all these death quotes? Why all these death scriptures? I have a whole other point. It'll be very true. I just realized that. We'll, we'll, I'll summarize it. Why all these death quotes? Why all these death scriptures? Why so much on providence again so soon? Well, One Thursday, VJ led us excellently through Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship how verse 2 be transformed by the renewal of your mind if that's what we're trying to accomplish we're seeking the renewal of our mind by the filling of our mind with the mind of Christ where do we find the mind of Christ we find the mind of Christ in the word of Christ right you are what you think what you think is largely determined by what you fill your mind with that's why you just Filling it with all that garbage is going to have a negative impact upon you. You are what you think. What you think is largely determined by what you fill your mind with. That's why God has given us a book. That's why he speaks and reveals. He's telling us the truth. He is telling us how things really are so that we can better see things as they really are, as he sees them as they truly are, so that we can be better prepared to face all the trials and the troubles of this hard life. They will come. Death will come. You either face them without the Lord and without his truth, or you face them with the Lord and with his truth. That's why we so need his word. It is light and life. It's why uh, we need that nowhere more desperately than in the face of our death. And in Christ, that death results only ultimately in life. Jesus wants us to look at it in light of him. He wants us to look at now in light of then. He wants us to better consider and steward our time and our life and prepare us for our death uh, so that we can see that grace, so that we can see his providence and read all of that through his good and gracious lenses. Perspective is so important. And that which is closest to us always appears greatest to us. That, that which our mind is fixed on is always magnified. So fix it on Christ. Let gracious providence be your perspective In time and death are transformed. I'm going to do what I don't use. I'm just going to cut the third point and we're going to do it next week. I'm going to save it because I think this is too important. Jesus says, Lazarus, is asleep and he goes to awaken him and the revelation that's coming next week that what he says i am the resurrection and the life that's it he is everything and he is claiming to be everything and so he reveals to us so kindly and so compassionately uh, both the terrible nature of death we're going to see christ weep at the tomb in a couple of weeks and we're going to tackle that But then, in light of Christ and what he's going to do, we see him here, call it sleep. And what I want you to see is that in Christ, your entire life and your entire um, death is transformed. And so as he says to Martha, I will say to you, do you believe this? That's the question. Let me close you with a word of prayer and benediction. Father, these are big and weighty things. Father, I I desperately do not want to speak glibly or lightly about death. Father, I want to speak truthfully about death. I want to speak as your word speaks about death. We know that it is the great enemy. Father, what promises we have about that great enemy in Christ. Destroyed, Hebrews 2 tells us. Destroys the devil and his power of death. Life, death, as sleep. Father, I desperately want us to live our lives in light of your truth. And Father, what a wonderful truth you have revealed to us um, this evening, this morning. Father, life is hard. But Christ is good. And so I pray that you would help us to increasingly live our lives in light of him. Father, I pray for our time. I pray that we would be good stewards of that time. Father, I pray that we would see that you and knowing you and your word and your law, these are not burdensome things. Father, help me to enjoy the things that you reveal to be joy in life. Pray that for my church, Lord. Pray that we would find great joy and delight in Jesus Christ. Father, that comes first and foremost by seeing him as our savior, by seeing how much worse we are than we thought and seeing how much better he is than we can begin to imagine. So Father, show us how good Christ is. and Give us a great love for him. And we pray that it would be that that then flows down and affects everything about how we live our lives for your glory. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you know us and that you are patient with us and that you are kind to us. Father, help us to love you and your son, Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray all of this only in his name. Amen.